But it's good to have Brother Jerry Locke with us today, and he's going to bring our next message. I appreciate Brother Locke so much. He was in our church uh, last year, the first meeting, I think, I think, after the real pandemic hit, and it was a great blessing to our church. Good to have you, Brother. Thank you, Pastor, very much. What do the following men have in common? Jacob, Samson, David, Elijah, Simon Peter, John Mark, and Jerry Law. They're all men of God. But by God's love and by God's grace and by God's mercy, He corrected their course. And they got right and stayed right with God. I want you to open your Bible today to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6. The fourfold work of divine inspired scripture, according to 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine that shows us the right path, reproof that shows us we're on the wrong path, Correction that shows us how to get on the right path again. And instruction in righteousness that tells us how we can stay on the path. Let's stand to our feet today as we read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own. For you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. With the Lord's help and with your prayers today, I want to preach a short message on how to get right and stay right with God. It might seem uh, unnecessary among preachers to preach such a message, but not only being a preacher, but a person who has known failure, that all of us need to get right and stay right with God. And I hope the title today doesn't sort of cause you to kind of take a moment of break from the messages because it might seem kind of direct and yet I think today God would be honored if we would listen to him today and as he speaks to our heart. Let's pray together. Father, we need you today to take over this service. Thank you for the kind invitation to preach and also for the men who have gone before me today. And I acknowledge again today that uh, you're a great God, capable and willing to do great things. And I pray today a manifestation of that would be for your own sake today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Let's get a context, if we can, uh, 
to the verses that we read, Paul introduces this letter to those who were sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Got any saints in the building today? Well, you're either a saint or an ain't. Amen? Either you know the Lord or you don't know the Lord. Paul was writing to people that had come to know the Lord. He also wrote the church of God, which was at Corinth. God's enabled me to be, be kind of on the circuit of doing conferences about Baptist truth. And here is a Bible Baptist truth, and that is, when you read about the church in the New Testament, it is always a visible local congregation. And I know I'm preaching to those who believe that strongly, but those out beyond us aren't sure about that. I'm glad that those local churches in the Bible were believers in Christ Jesus who had publicly professed their faith in the Lord by the act of baptism. And those who had become part of that congregation were then to associate with each other, gather together, and then extend the work of the Lord beyond in their local communities. Church is a great thing for God's people. Paul begins the passage that, I, that we've read together today in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 13, uh, 9, 6 and verse 19 with this statement. What? Know ye not? What? Sort of like the woman that said to her husband, you didn't hear a thing I said, did you? He said, that's a strange way to start a conversation. This is sort of a strange way to start this conversation. What? Know ye not? It's a negative in thought that had a positive understanding. What he was saying was, you know better. You know better. I was there when you came to Christ. In Acts 18, Paul spent probably the longest tenure of his ministry at Corinth, 18 months. And there he indoctrinated them and led them to Christ. And he, he's, he's surprised that there's been a change in their life. What know ye not? Matter of fact, in verse 11, he had gone just through some verses before that about all those that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he said, such were some of you. Many people in this building have had a were moment in their life. Where what they were, they are not anymore. But over time, this passage tells us that something had changed. They were still congregating. They were still uh, saved. But individually and congregationally, they were compromised. In chapter 1, they were, had become followers of good men like Paul and Apollos and Peter and the real pious ones of Christ. Chapter 2, Paul was making sure that their faith was not standing in the, the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In chapter 3, he calls them out as being babes in Christ. They were in perpetual infancy. They could not endure hard doctrine. 
In chapter 4, uh, he said he wrote this letter not to shame them, but to warn them. And in chapter 5, he exposes the fact that there was some well-known congregational uh, scuttle going on about a, a man who was engaged in sexual activity with his uh, mother-in-law or mother or who knows. But everyone knew about it and the church was doing nothing about it. And in chapter 6, he starts the chapter with the fact that they were taking fellow church members to civil court to settle their differences. And he said, don't you know the angels look on you? You have the authority within your church to settle these issues. And then graphically before the text that I read today, sexual temptation was rampant in their city and no doubt had an effect on their churches and all of us have to say, oh me to that. I want to go to the very heart of these verses to begin with today to show you how a person is saved and how a person who is saved can begin the process of getting right with God. Look at, look at the middle part of these two verses and you'll see in the last part of verse 19 in the first part of verse 20 this statement. And ye are not your own for ye are bought with a price. You, you, you know, I, I'm going to make the assumption that, that you know directly what this is about. But we shouldn't make too much uh, about our assumptions. We should teach the Bible. And what we know about this passage is that former lost hellbound sinners who needed a Savior found out through Paul's preaching in Corinth in Acts 18 that Jesus had paid the price for their redemption, for their salvation, and it was not through uh, silver or gold, Peter would say, but with the precious blood of Christ. And Paul is getting these folks to reflect back on the fact that they were saved by Jesus Christ. They were saved people, and they should have been living a saved life. It's already been quoted that in this 1 Corinthians letter, Paul had said when he went there, he, his main job was to preach Christ and, and him crucified. Now, I don't believe that that means that we're to preach only Christ and him crucified, but I'll go ahead and say it lest I forget it. In my age, I forget a lot of stuff. But ladies and gentlemen, when we hear the gospel and we receive the truth of the gospel to the saving of our souls, from that point, we do not move away from the gospel. We move into the gospel. And Paul is reminding these people again that they have a Savior. They have someone who paid for their sin debt. Jesus paid a debt I did not owe, and I owed a debt I could not pay. I, I needed someone to wash my sins away. Now sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all day long. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. Ladies and gentlemen, the reason we step away from being right with God is we forget what it took to make us right with God. Christ paid a debt. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. 
I've heard a lot of quotes, and it, it made me a little bit humorous today. We've had quite a few quotes from different preachers already, and I'm about to make one myself of Charles Spurgeon. And I was thinking, I wrote down last night, I sure will be glad when I'm dead so I can be quoted. <laughs> Even though you don't agree with me about some things. And we don't agree with all these guys we quote, but we know, we know a pearl when we seize one, see one. And here's what, here's what Spurgeon said. He said, go at once to the cross. There and only there can you get your spirit quickened. The more we live beholding our Lord's unutterable griefs and understand how he fully put away our sin, the more holiness we shall produce. Nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. Jesus paid this price because he loves us. And it's great to know that John 3.16 says he loved the world and, and uh, he gave Jesus to come to be our Savior. And it's great to know that Ephesians 5.25 said he loved the church and gave himself for it. But it's more precious to know in, in Galatians 2.20 that he loved me and he gave himself for me. And, and the real conclusion of that heart of this two-verse passage, and it's only 49 words, is that we have a new owner. Amen. We've been bought with a price. Jesus is now Lord and Savior. None of us live to himself, and no one dies to himself. So whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. And we need to call, by the way, the greatest mission field in America are dead church members. Our church members who've moved away from our congregations. And what we need to do is we need to have some way of regathering those folks and reminding them if they are saved that they have a new owner. They cannot live their lives like they are their own. So the application of this, this section is how long has it been since you were in awe of your Savior? We've had some great hymn singing that's been pointed toward Him through the course of this meeting already. And it's helped me to, to remind myself again as I need to over and over again that I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. I have a great and wonderful Savior. And, and has it struck you that you're still saved? In spite of your failures, in spite of your Corinthian ways, you're still saved. Jesus paid it all, all to him, I owe. We have a new owner. But notice how the passage begins. Paul relates this to the sexual activities of those of that time. Uh, and he mentions this, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God? Amen. Now what's this about? Well, it's about the, the presence of the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost of God, because Jesus Christ, through his death, secured for us two wonderful gifts according to Acts 2.38. Repent therefore and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. 
That's salvation. That's being born again. That's about being redeemed. But it also goes on to say this, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children and to all them that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Jesus laid down his life for us so he could give his life to us. And the life he gave to us is the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. That's why a saved person sees differently, hears differently, thinks differently, and walks differently. He is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. You see, one of the greatest things about being saved is not only that we get to go to heaven when we die. That's great. But the great part about being saved now is that between the cross and heaven, God lives in us. I don't know why we're not making more about that. I don't know where we got off track. I'm reading my Bible through this year, and... uh, I'm doing something that I've never done before in the fact that I'm marking every passage that I read, and I'm just through a second, 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel. I'm marking every passage with a P that it speaks about the presence of God. It's been the most interesting Bible reading that I've had in years because what you find out is this. All of the Bible is His story. It's His presence in our life that makes the difference. I would to God that you and I could somehow could understand that our lives are different, not because we make them different, but because Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit has made them different. We have a new occupant. Those that are taking notes, that's the second point. When we get to the third point, really get happy, all right? We have a new owner. We've been bought with a price. We have a new occupant. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Now when you think about it, that's radical. I don't know if anybody's ever moved in and lived with you, but it changed your family if he did. Now thankfully, we've, my wife and I have avoided that. We've never wanted the interruption. We never have had the opportunity. Maybe that would be more pious of me to say. (laughs) But what if somebody came and moved in with you to live with you, to eat your meals with you, to watch your television with you, to listen to your every conversation, to go with you to your job? Man, that would be life like never before. Folks, what we need to do is transfer that kind of thinking to the fact that God lives in us. When God saved you, He didn't just pat you on the back and and said, I'll see you on the other side. He moves in and takes over our lives. If I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, every day is a holy day and every place is a sacred place and all things that Our natural should be spiritual and all things spiritual should be natural. The Spirit is residing in us. The question might be, is He reigning in us? He's present. Is He presiding? He is dwelling. Is He dominant? While visiting the World Fair in 1883, A.J. Gordon, who was the pastor at 
Clarendon Street Baptist Church in Boston, went to the World Fair in Boston. And one of the things that intruded, intruded, intrigued him was that as he was visiting there, he saw at a distance a man who was uh, pumping a well, and out of the well was this huge gushing of water that was coming out. But the closer Garden got to that event, he found out that, that it wasn't a man at all, it was a mannequin. And the mannequin's hand was attached to the pump, which was pumping from an artesian well. The well was pumping the man. Not the man, the well. And A.J. Garden understood, as you and I should today, that if there's anything going to ever be done in our lives or through our lives, it's going to be the Spirit of God, not us. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. That relieves you a lot of responsibility you've taken on to yourself. God desires to work in you so he can work through you. And he'll be glad to do that if you'll be awakened to his presence. Would you just begin to think today, God is here. God is in each believer's life today. Making changes that are necessary for growth and, and for things that are going to be beneficial eternally. Are you awakened to that? I'm afraid that people, that they, they sleepwalk into our buildings on Sundays. They come in, uh, and, and I, don't, I sure don't want to beat them up for, for coming every week and for wanting to be there and for singing and listening, but folks, we need to elevate what's going on in church we're here in the presence of God today. Amen. We need to be awakened to that. Amen. See how the verses close? What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore... Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see the therefore? You need to stop and see what it's there for. It points back up to the context of the verse. Christ paid the debt of our salvation. The spirit now lives in us in the present process of sanctification. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our number one priority in life is not to please people, not to be liked by people, although those are possible, but we're here to glorify God. We have a new occupation. We have a new occupation. It's to glorify God. Before salvation, we were falling short of the glory of God. But now, through this wonderful gift of salvation and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have a single goal, a single work, a single occupation. It is to glorify God. In our day-to-day, moment-by-moment lives, Paul's letter here says later on in chapter 10 and verse 31, 
Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do to the glory of God. We're to live our lives in such a way that we are attractive, not distractive. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Church is all about the glory of God. We're not here to entertain. We're not here to, to, to make uh, political statements. That's already been well said and overdone probably. But I'm telling you here, here's the Bible what it says. Unto him be glory in the church. Amen. By Christ Jesus throughout all ages. Our saved, spirit-filled lives can be supernaturally natural and naturally supernatural. We are trophies of God's grace according to Ephesians 2 and verse 7. God's inheritance is in His saints. We have an inheritance, but He has an inheritance. It's us. He thinks well of you. He bought you. He lives in you. We are God's work of salvation and sanctification. We're His workmanship. I just want to know, how do you feel about your own life? Is your life captivating? Is it attractive? Is it compelling? I think about the people who encountered our Savior, the maniac of Gadara. I call him the the new dude in a rude mood. <laughs> 3,000 pigs were extracted from him through the power of Jesus Christ. They, they committed suicide. <laughs> the, the pork futures did a swine dive. <laughs> but you know, when they came to, the people of uh, Decapolis came to see him, he was clothed and sitting and in his right mind. But they compelled Jesus to leave and he wanted to leave with him. But Jesus said, no, I want you to stay here and tell your friends what great things the Lord has done for you and had compassion on you. And the next time Jesus comes back, that's Mark 5, the next time Jesus comes back to Decapolis in Mark 7, there are, there's a multitude waiting for Jesus to heal the people. What was the reason? There was a compelling witness when Zacchaeus met Jesus, he was literally up a tree. And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down. For today I must abide at thy house. Somebody's asked, when did Zacchaeus get saved? Somewhere between the, the limb and the ground. I, I don't know. But I do know this. When he met Jesus, his life was changed. He came out of that meeting saying this, that uh, if I've taken anything from the poor, I'll... I'll just uh, give it away and I'll restore those that I've extracted money falsely from. Can you imagine Zacchaeus' return trip to those people he had extorted from? Knocking on the door, who is it? Zacchaeus. Oh no, here he comes again and he's got a tax refund now. What a day. You know what people are looking for? They're looking for a changed life. They're looking for someone who really knows what's happened in his life and can, can validate the value God has placed upon saving a soul through the blood of Jesus and living in them through the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Amen. We're to glorify God in our body. That's what you put in your body and that's what you put on your body. 
If you really want to know how not to dress, go to Walmart. Oh, my soul. And in your spirit, he says, that's your attitude and your words. Now, you and I may dress right, but we may have a, heart, a bad heart. We may be critical about everyone else. The Bible says that we need to make sure that our spirit is right inwardly as well as our body is right outwardly. We need to drop all those sorry attitudes and that bad language and everything else that goes with this world. You know, you, know you could set your life apart from... From the larger population, if you just didn't say bad language. I mean, bad language is all around us. And when you clean up your life, God cleans it up. He'll clean that part of your life out. He really will. Now, it is true that our bodies are to be crucified and mortified. We're also to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. And so if that's the case, we have a new owner. Are you in awe of the Savior? We have a new occupant. Are you awakened to the presence of God in your life? We have a new occupation. We're to glorify God. Are you available to God? Are you available? What occupies your life that brings glory to God? A new owner in awe. A new occupant awakened and a new occupation available. That was point number three. Uh, you missed that point. I kind of camouflaged it. It's one of my spiritual gifts. <laughs> so how do you get right and stay right with God? Thank your owner for the work of salvation. I'm his and he is mine. I want to spend my life apprehending why I've been apprehended. Hmm. Yield to your occupant. Make him living in you happy. He lives in you. Is he happy about living in you? In this process of sanctification. And then thirdly, live out day by day, moment by moment, your occupation. The next time someone asks you, what do you do for a living? You could answer this. Well, I feed my family by being a pastor, plumber, driving a truck, whatever it may be. But my occupation is living for the glory of God, whose son died for me and whose spirit lives in me. By the way, how am I doing? We could all do better. I'm